May was big for tech. Could June be even bigger? You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Woolard, and I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. Hi, Tim. Hey, Deidre. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. A lot of earnings. A lot of earnings, a lot of tech. So we've got a shiny new month here. Last month, big month for tech, and the you know the Nasdaq more tech focused, up nearly six percent. QQQ, which is kind of be used for this other measure of tech growth, that's up fourteen percent for the trailing twelve months. I mean, I don't want to get too optimistic here, but are happy days here again, or should we be a little bit cautious about what we're seeing? Oh, we should be a lot bit cautious. <laughs> okay. I'm not saying, I, and and not that's that's not to be the hey get off my lawn guy here. I'm just saying that these things tend to come in spurts, and we should expect that there will be skepticism. There will be some reports that disappoint. Um, no, I I don't think we're we're at happy days or here again. Uh, I, and that's that's not the moment that we're in. What we are in is where things are starting to, to normalize a little bit. Supply chains may have loosened up a little bit, and they were really tight. Maybe there's some some normalized spending here. So good players that are well positioned that have done the work to become more profitable, more efficient. We're seeing those companies maybe doing a little bit better. The market may not be recognizing it yet, and that's okay. What's important is that some of these companies are getting structurally better. That's nice to see. Well, you just mentioned the market might not be recognizing it, and that's sort of a little bit of the theme that we saw for a couple of companies I want to talk to you about today. First one being CrowdStrike. You know, it seems yep. like it seemed pretty great. Revenue up about 42%. Who doesn't like that? Maybe a little bit of decelerating growth, but the market didn't like this one so much. Why? It looks like because the forecast for annual recurring revenue just wasn't up to snuff. Like the market wanted something closer to 48%. That's not what we got. So, whenever the market is forecasting high growth for a forward looking metric like annual recurring revenue, when the number isn't quite good enough, the market suddenly says, oh, that's it. Growth is slowing down. Not good. And, and, I don't know that that's true because if if we take a look at the CrowdStrike numbers, they were quite good. You mentioned that revenue was up 42%. That's right. Remaining performance obligation also up about 41%. So the way to think about remaining performance obligation, there's a couple of components to it: deferred revenue and backlog. But basically, this is all of the business that is to come, and a lot of it is longer-term business. And the fact that that number is as big as it is, it's over 3.3 billion right now, means that there's a lot of growth still to come for a CrowdStrike. And on top of that, they're generating tremendous cash flows. They're doing very well. And there are some good reasons for that. I know you want to get into this. Basically, they're doing better selling to their existing customers. 
Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about that because one of the things they do is they've got modules. So the modules, they kind of, as as I understand it, and you can uh, maybe clarify here, they add different aspects of kind of like security and, and intelligence and functionality. And one of the things they said was 62% of their customers have five or more modules. So, And they're growing their customer base at the same time. So is that part of the, the future growth story here is grow more customers and then sell those customers more things? CrowdStrike is essentially a subscription business. So as customers decide that they want to rely on CrowdStrike for more stuff, like they're going to rely on it for endpoint security, maybe they're going to rely on identity, or maybe they'll add some you know, other aspects of security. And each of these modules provides some distinct features that you could add on to your CrowdStrike subscription. And so, as you scale up your CrowdStrike experience, the more modules you have, the bigger your bill, the more seats that you have, you're going to end up spending more. And so, it's a good indicator of not just high growth, but actual profitable growth as you have existing customers adding more modules. So, the specific breakdown, 62% of the customer base has five or more modules, 40% six or more, and 23% seven or more. And so, as that as that numbers, as those numbers scale up, we can expect that the existing customers are contributing very high margin growth to the business which leads to this tremendous cash flow we see at at CrowdStrike. It's an indicator of just how healthy the business is. So, just for the sake of argument here, Deidre, super quickly, if we just look at the cash flow numbers for CrowdStrike, quarter over quarter, we do the year over year number, um, profits were about 500 million. That's a massive improvement on a, uh, you know, close to, well, a big loss. I I think I'm reading it wrong. If I was to say $30 billion loss, that doesn't seem Ooh. quite right. Um, I don't think that's right. I think I've got that wrong. The point is, the net cash from operating activities year over year was up to about $301 million. That's up from about $215 million. Now, some of that is due to the artificial sweetener of stock-based compensation expense, but not a lot of it. Most of it is coming from better what we call working capital management. So, big increase in accounts receivable. In other words, people are on the phones saying, hey, we need your check. The checks come in, that receivable turns into cash, and that's more cash on the books. They're just getting more efficient, Deidre. And when you see that, when you see a business that's routinely Growing well, but also growing profitably and expanding the cash it can generate as a result of that, you should get very interested. And I think the thing with CrowdStrike that's interesting is that a lot of that growth is coming from existing customers who've become increasingly reliant on the platform. That's a good sign. That's true, and there's also sort of long-term fears over cybersecurity that that will continue to kind of drive this. And I want to get into something else with CrowdStrike because you know if the day ends in Y, we're going to be talking to AI and CrowdStrike. They announced Charlotte AI. Yeah, yeah it's it's a sounds like it's a generative AI security analyst. They called it a quote unquote force multiplier for security experts. I read the release. It sounds kind of like an automated security help desk, but I think there's got to be more to it, right? 
is there? Because <laughs> I'm going to say, I, I, you know, not to uh, to borrow too much from the great state of Missouri, but I mean, you got to show me, show me. Like I'll believe it when when I can I can see that this is actually happening because the story with CrowdStrike for such a long period of time is they collect a huge amount of data that provides signals of attacks that might be coming, security threats. They've been they've had what's called a threat detection graph for years, basically since the beginning of the business. So, what's different now? We're going to have a new algorithm that we call Charlotte that's going to take a look at that threat detection data and do something materially different. I mean, maybe, but I'll believe it when I see it, Deidre. The good thing is, everybody's talking about AI. I'll believe it when I see it. If CrowdStrike can show me that they are they are getting materially better at detecting threats earlier by virtue of applying Charlotte to the threat detection graph, okay, I'll believe it then. Until then, not part of the thesis. Makes sense. And, and as you mentioned, they've been really doing AI for years. This is just sort of a, a new layer onto, onto what they've already done. Yeah, they've, done, they've, they've been using data for the purposes of protecting their customers for a very long time. I just this smacks entirely of everybody's got to put AI in a press release. So let's call it Charlotte, put it in the press release, and we'll get some bonus points for that. I don't. I'm not so cynical to think that that's exactly what they did. I'm sure they're actually working on something, but I, it's way too early, way too early to give them any kind of credit for actually achieving something. Maybe they will. And then, hey, it'll be a big bonus if they do. Well, let's pivot and talk Salesforce because their earnings came out too. And, you know, with Salesforce, one of the things they said they were going to do is they were going to improve margins. And their margins yes. are up. They, they did it. They were very happy about it on the earnings call. Mark Benioff kept using the terms incredible and amazing. This is a relatively mature business. So, should we be focused on those margins? Should we be looking at revenue growth? What are we looking for from Salesforce? We are looking for efficiency. Incredible and amazing are superlatives we shouldn't be using. That's that's <laughs> really and and you know what I mean. Mark Benioff is Mark Benioff, so he has every right to be saying those things, and we should expect that from him because he is a cheerleader. He's a cheerleader CEO. If he wasn't saying those things, I'd be worried. But should we be saying those things? No, not really. But he is right about one thing: the margins are definitely better. So if you just look at the core. Uh, income statement and the percentages here. Total operating income, the operating margin was five percent. Uh, so this is where they are on a on a gross basis here. Um, that is up significantly. If you consider that eight percent of operating expense went to restructuring, without that restructuring, it would be a thirteen percent operating margin. So they are definitely trending in the in the right direction here. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, and also the cash flow statement looks. I mean, honestly, Deidre, this I, I don't really want to say that Benioff has gotten religion here but off air I was telling you like this looks like the difference between a formerly drunk sailor that has gotten sober I mean that's that's what it looks like when I which is a terrible analogy but <laughs> it does 
look like that when you look at at the cash flow statement. Um, not only was the cash from operations up, but the contribution from stock-based compensation expense was down. All of the areas where you could generate efficiency in terms of improved working capital were up. So, like the accounts receivable, more checks coming in, six point one billion added by accounts receivable. That's awesome. That's up from five point eight billion in the same period a year ago. Um, bigger contribution from depreciation and amortization. Net income uh, was was up. Most things were up. And here's the other thing that I find absolutely fascinating, Deidre. They are buying back stock and paying down debt, and they are actually buying back stock and retiring it. The diluted share count was down. I mean, and they did buy back quite a bit of stock, um, two billion worth. They paid back a billion dollars worth of debt, and most of that does look like it's coming through the generate, you know, organic generation of cash, most of the money to pay for that is coming from organic cash generation. That That's new. So, this is, I would still say, the beginning, but let's give Salesforce some credit for showing some real operating muscle here. This is different. Yeah, it is different. It came at a bit of a cost. You know, they had layoffs. They've they've yeah, uh, it did really trimmed down their real estate portfolio. Um, wanted to talk to you a little bit too about Salesforce and AI because we have to talk about AI. On the call, they yeah. talked a lot about data security. They talked a lot about large language models that are are private or you know protecting that basically allowing companies, their corporate companies, to use. Generative AI without exposing their private data to you know to the to the larger language models. Do you feel how how confident do you feel about Salesforce's AI efforts in general? I I'm sorry I'm going to be get off my lawn guy again. <laughs> I mean I think it it is it's too soon it's too soon to know that and large language models are are arguably dumb. To begin with, because they they are in constant learning mode and they need a lot of work. And honestly, the large language model is really only going to be as good as the data set that it applies to. And so, if you can apply really good rigor to the data set and then apply a really good algorithm or a really good AI to that data set, you might be able to get some really good results and really interesting things. So, for example, I do think that there is an opportunity for Salesforce to do fascinating things with private data that a customer generates through Slack, for example, and then allowing AI to teach your internal Slack environment to be smarter, to automate some workflows that are common to your business. I do let me be clear. I do think there is an opportunity here, but to give them credit right now would be bananas. I would not do that. It's way too soon to give them credit for that. So, as an idea, sure, but you have to figure out the other side of it. Having large language models in and of themselves, immaterial. What you do 
with a well-trained, a well-designed, well-organized data set and applying a good large language model to it or a good algorithm to it, that's where you get real magic. So I'm not even close to giving them any credit for this yet. But as an idea, do I want them to integrate some AI and some good AI discipline into Slack. You're darn right I do. I want them to be doing that right now. Because if they don't, and they don't make Slack more valuable, then I think they face the prospect in the next 24 months of a pretty large goodwill write-off. And as a shareholder of Salesforce, I do not want that. Well, you called Mark Benioff a cheerleader CEO. You know, He's a big, charismatic guy. And yes. maybe he doesn't play so well with others. He's had a couple of co-CEOs leave. You know, looking to the future of Salesforce, do you think he's learned his lesson? Do you think he can partner with another co-CEO? Would he have to leave in order for succession to happen? Looking at the future of Salesforce leadership, what what do you see? So, are you asking me? Is there a Kendall Roy for uh, <laughs> for Mark Benioff? I don't know. I mean, the to me. I look at this as the Benioff show, and it will be the Benioff show until it's not the Benioff show. And I think that's okay. Mark Benioff, as the leader of this company, has been outstanding. He is a visionary leader. The fact that they are generating some real operating discipline while he is still leading the company, I think, is a very good sign. But I really frame this, Deidre, as Benioff will at some point leave, and there will be the Tim Cook equivalent for Salesforce. Or at least, I think that is the ideal scenario. What what people may not remember, I think a lot of people do remember this, but what they may not remember is that Tim Cook, for a long time, was chief operating officer. And he was outstanding at, a, at turning operational discipline into a weapon for Apple at a time when Steve Jobs was still CEO like there was a point at which he absolutely killed it by going and buying up huge amounts of RAM in Asia he just essentially cornered that market and it helped the iPhone become a much richer device they sort of got the best product the best components they could put in the iPhone and they took a huge lead on some of their device competitors at that time and they really never relinquished it i mean cook made moves that made jobs look smart and he has since become an outstanding leader of apple so i think the next phase for salesforce is who's the tim cook of Salesforce. I don't know who that is right up, right off the top of my head, but I think that's what I'm looking for. That makes sense. Well, Tim, I always love talking tech with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Deidre. Six years ago, Jason Moser put together a war on cash basket of stocks. Alex Friedman checked in with Moser about those companies and how the trend is shaking out. 
It's, it's certainly been a fun point of conversation over the last several years. Um, in, in the war on cash basket, just for a little background for those who don't know, I think most probably do at this point, but uh, the war on cash basket ultimately was just a, a, a collection of four companies that uh, we, we felt were, were playing a very important role in, in sort of the evolution of the payment space, the way mo money is moving, uh, so to speak. And so it, it's made up of MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, and Square. Um, and ultimately, the idea is to vote is to devote equal amounts to each company. So you have four companies. You know, you divide that by four. You get 100% divide that by four. You could put about 25% into each company, um, and giving yourself exposure to a nice little risk ladder there of some stalwart type companies in MasterCard and Visa, a little bit of a more of a mid-range risk in PayPal, and then a little bit of a, a riskier idea in Block, formerly known as Square. So, looking over the last six years, how has it performed during the pandemic, and what's going on now? Yeah, so if you look at the actual uh, performance since inception, I mean, we go back to July twenty fourth, two thousand and seventeen. I mean, it, it's it's certainly been a, a bumpy ride <laughs> to say the least. But I mean, over overall, since inception, the basket has performed very well uh, compared to the market. The basket itself, the collection of four companies, is is up uh, just a bit over one hundred and ten percent, one hundred and twelve percent to be exact, versus the market's performance over that same stretch, which is about eighty eight percent. Certainly, we had seen that delta a little bit. Greater at, at, at uh, other times, but but for the most part, the basket has done what I, I was hoping it would do: uh, make money and outperform the market. Now, you did mention during the pandemic, and I think that's something important to break out here because while the six-year performance for the basket has, has been very encouraging, you know, we we saw over the stretch of of the last three years or so. Just a lot of volatility in, in a lot of a lot of change, right? In 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 some of what these companies are really trying to do, and so just looking at the dates going from March first of 2020 to the end of 2023. Uh, it was a little bit of a different story, right? The basket actually performed fairly poorly when we thought. Uh, it would have probably performed better. Now I think it performed better in in the early onset. Right, but overall, it's not done so hot, and I think a lot of that uh, has has been due to performance from PayPal and in Block, whereas Mastercard and Visa have kind of they've kind of towed the line, so to speak, and in, in, in filled their role uh, as as relatively stable performers. But again, going back to since inception, you go back to inception, the the basket has performed very well, so I'm pleased. We'll definitely dive into the performance of some of these stocks in a second. Before we do, I'm curious, how do the tailwinds continue to form as consumers use cash less and less around the world? Yeah, I mean, you see these numbers quoted everywhere. And I mean, the one thing to always keep in mind: this is such a big market opportunity, right? But we're talking about truly a global market opportunity, and so it, you know, it kind of breaks down to how often are people using cash, right? I think the general trend is is still very much intact that people are using cash less and less. And I mean, it didn't it didn't require a pandemic for that trend to begin. I think that the last three years accelerated that to an extent. But I mean, if you look at some of the Numbers out there. According to Pew Research, uh, today, roughly four in ten Americans, around forty percent, say that none of their purchases in a typical week are paid for using cash. That's up from twenty nine percent in two thousand and eighteen and twenty four percent in two thousand and fifteen. Um, and and uh, you know, on, on a similar note, there you you look around uh, the world. There, the European Central Bank recently pulled some statistics on this, and cash was used for fifty nine percent of point of 
of sale transactions in 2022. That was down from 72% in 2019. So I think all around the world, we're seeing this trend play out. We're just moving more and more towards the digital movement of money. The best performing stock in the basket has been MasterCard, which is up 187% since 2017. When it comes to MasterCard's business performance, what factors do you attribute to the success we've seen with its stock? Yeah, I think with MasterCard and and I'll lump Visa in this conversation as well, just because the two businesses are so similar and they serve they serve a very similar role in this basket. I mean, they've just done such a good job in leveraging their network to do more. I mean, what we've always liked about MasterCard is is the business model, right? It's that toll booth. Uh, sort of model where they they own the payment rails where that money kind of has to to go along their rails to kind of get from point A to point B and they collect just that little toll that little interchange um, along the way that really affords them that that uh, attractive margin picture um, and and steady reliable growth right this isn't this isn't the kind of company that's going to be growing 30 40 50 percent a year uh, but it's it's very steady right it's it's a steady reliable grower and that's kind of the point behind it but I think. With MasterCard uh, and Visa, similarly, uh, what we've seen these businesses do is take these these massive networks that they've built out through the years through this physical card business that we've all uh, come to know and love, and they've really just done a good a good job in leveraging the network to to do more. So you're talking about capturing new payment flows, new ways that money is moving around, disbursements, remittances, commercial point of sale, business to business payments, consumer bill payments, and even buy now pay later, right? I mean, we're seeing these businesses starting to 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 take their networks and build the technology on top of that to to do more. Um, and and with Mastercard, you know, it's not just a payments business. I mean, they they bring value add services to their customers, the merchants and consumers alike. We're talking about things like cyber and intelligence solutions, data and service. You had insights, analytics, analytics, consulting, and marketing. So so again, they're just doing a very good job of leveraging the network to extract more value for both the consumers and the merchants. Up next is PayPal. All of the companies in the war on cash basket have more than doubled since you put the basket together in 2017, except for PayPal, which is only about 5%. This has been a very volatile stock, initially rising 420% in the summer of 2021, and then falling close to 80% to its current price of about $62 today. So I'm curious, what are some of the main factors you attribute to the roller coaster ride that PayPal investors have faced over the years? Yeah, it's definitely been a roller coaster ride. Yeah, to me, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot going on here with PayPal, and I think there are there can be a lot of reasons as to why the, the the sentiment is so so sour really today on on the business. I mean, I think it's fair to say that over the last three years, the last three years resulted in a lot of overconfidence. Not just not just in regard to PayPal, but I think a lot of businesses over the last three years saw things change so quickly. We saw so much growth being pulled forward at the time, feeling like everything was going to be done differently from here on out right i mean this was this was just like this this moment where everything was just going to pivot and we were going to be doing things so much differently going forward and 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 yeah certainly things have changed to an extent but i mean you look at the way things are going today i don't think it's to the extent that a lot of folks envisioned earlier on uh, in, in, in short, I mean, I think we're kind of kind of back to normal in a lot of ways now, um, and, and I don't know that I don't know that PayPal necessarily made a lot of the right moves along the way to instill a lot of confidence for investors as to where they are right now. I mean, it's it's really it is kind of conflicting. I mean, when you look at the actual business, 
it's it's performing well, right? It's it's not a bad business, uh, but they they made some they made some bets, they made some investments and some decisions along the way that I think have, have caused investors to to maybe take a little bit a little bit of a step back and wonder exactly what's really driving the bus here, right? And PayPal is it's an involved business. It's not just PayPal. I mean, you got PayPal, but then you have Venmo, you've got Braintree, you've got Zoom, you've got Honey and Zettle. And I think one of the biggest challenges with PayPal, quarter in and quarter out. Is they they've not done management has not done a very good job at all in in really breaking out the business and giving us more granularity into how each facet of the business is performing right I mean we get information on Venmo because Venmo is kind of top of mind for so many people because so many people use it but other than really kind of understanding where PayPal and Venmo stand we just don't have much insight as to how these other these other facets of the business are contributing and so i think that's been that's been a big point of contention with a lot of investors myself included but uh, folks that i know who cover the business and, and folks that i, I talk about the, the business with i mean they feel the same way we want more we want more information and we may get that right we we are seeing uh, a situation here where the ceo dan shulman is is going to be stepping down uh, now he could be there through the end of the year. I hope, honestly, that he's not. I don't have anything against him, right? I think he could have done a better job. But the bottom line is, the longer that he's there, the more uncertain things are, right? And we we know that old saying: the market hates uncertainty. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty in regard to PayPal and, and how they're reporting the data in, in in how the business is performing. There's a lot of uncertainty in regard to leadership. Um, if you remember, not all that long ago, they really had these aspirations to build out that quote unquote super app that could do all sorts of things, and you would live your entire financial life in PayPal. And you know those those rarely work out. I, I, most consumers don't want to place all of their eggs in one basket. And so, like as an example, when we saw PayPal touting that they were going to bring stock trading into their platform, I mean, it sounds great. It makes for a good headline. But honestly, like, why? Why would they do that? What can they do to make that experience better than the? Companies that are already out there doing it, right? I mean, you're talking about something that a lot of other companies out there do very well already. There's no way it's going to be any kind of a meaningful moneymaker for PayPal. So it's wasted resources, wasted time. Um, and, and, and that was just one example of just the many little things that they've been doing along the way that I think have taken their attention away from the core business. And so it's encouraging to see that they're getting back to the core focus of the PayPal app, the digital wallet, the checkout experience, and really utilizing the strengths of the business in PayPal, Venmo, and Braintree. We may see them trimming this business along the way. There, there, there is uh, some some word out there that they're thinking about unloading Zoom, the the X O O M Zoom, uh, which is that remittance company they acquired several years back. I wish I could tell you why. I wish I could tell you whether that was a good idea or not. But we don't ever get any data <laughs> regarding how Zoom is performing, and that kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier about management just not really giving us as much information as as we'd like. But but when you take a step back and you look at the actual business itself again, I mean, it generates a ton of cash. It's got this network of 400 million plus users. It's pushing through one plus trillion dollars in 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 volume through its networks. It's got two of the most popular payment platforms in PayPal and Venmo, a tremendous backend infrastructure provider in Braintree. I mean, just there are a lot of things going for it. But but clearly, the the sentiment right now on on PayPal is is very sour. One last question: When you think about owning these stocks through the different periods of volatility, what is your biggest takeaway that you've learned as an investor? 
Well, I, I think my biggest takeaway is just that really this is the purpose that the basket serves, right? And the idea from the very get-go was to be able to identify a really big market opportunity and, and focus less on trying to pick the winner of that market opportunity and more on trying to pick the winners. Because as often is the case, when we see these large market opportunities, it's not about just one winner. I mean, there are going to be a lot of businesses that, that succeed, right? It, it, it's a rising tide that's going to lift a lot of boats. And so, you know, I, I remember in the very beginning when I, when I uh, opened up our, our next gen supercycle service, the 5G service, uh, and I had recommended all four of these companies in, in that service. This was uh, three years ago, I think. And at the time, I remember some people saying, I can't believe you're recommending Visa and MasterCard. Those are dead in the water. The, the world is moving past those businesses. These, it's all about fintech and PayPal and Block and whatnot. And I thought, okay, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but let's remember those, those businesses hold, hold a, a still a, a, a strong position in the value chain. And, and lo and behold, you fast forward today, and MasterCard and Visa are the two businesses that are that are really kind of holding their own, whereas Block and PayPal are, are going through some some more challenging times. And so I think really for me, it just it, it it's really reinforced the purpose of the basket in the first place, and and uh, it, it's always fun to to identify those bigger market opportunities and, and then really try to find multiple winners in the space because that's usually how it shakes out. program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.